Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Joining us now, the director of the Canadian Safe Boating Council, Ian Gilson. Ian, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Thank you for doing this. Well, we don't know, uh, you know, we have some suspicions about this accident. As uh, Tristan mentioned, wind may have played a role. We don't know what happened. So I don't want to talk about that tragedy specifically, but it is an opportunity for us to talk about boat safety uh, because we are into the nice weather now and more and more people will be on and in the water. Um, if wind did play a role, and I was up for a few hours uh, on Lake Winnipeg yesterday, and it was very windy, and, and you know, Ian, how uh, wind can really affect the water, especially on a big lake like that. It certainly can. Um, you you can get it blow up in a hurry, too, and that's why it's really, really important to do your homework before you go out and check the marine forecast, which will not only tell you the wind speed, but it'll tell you the wave heights, so you can determine on your own whether or not uh, your experience level as well as the uh, the fit of your craft is going to be up to the task. What else do we need to keep in mind before we get in a boat? Well, our, uh, our experience level could have taken the odd little uh, fuzzy hit over the wintertime, so it's, uh, it's to, our, to our benefit to really get out there and, and make sure that uh, we've got all our safety equipment on board the boat and that it isn't locked somewhere at home. It's, uh, it's there, readily usable, uh, our electronics, which would enable you to call for help, have uh, fresh batteries in it so that uh, you're not uh, going to be hampered that way, too. Make sure you have both a visible and um, audio, audio means of calling for help, and always, too, wear a life jacket. That is always the most important uh, rule of being on the water. I was going to say, uh, if you didn't mention it, I was going to say, is on a life jacket the most important thing? And sometimes I think, you know, we're out enjoying a nice day, and we think, oh, gee, you know, it's right here. It's it's right there. If I need it, I can grab it. But it really is important to put it on and leave it on. Especially in a high wind consideration, uh, if you happen to be swept overboard, uh, the wind and the waves will oftentimes take that craft far away from you, certainly beyond your reach, and the only thing that's keeping you um, afloat is a life jacket. Yeah. And uh, alcohol, I don't think you mentioned alcohol. That that almost goes without saying, but I, I think it's important to remind, uh, because again, you're out, you're having fun, you're in, you're being social. We, we, you know, that uh, ability to socialize a bit is sort of pent up with COVID-19, and uh, it's important that you uh, make sure you don't have too much to drink, and certainly not if you're operating the boat. And certainly the two, that, uh, that's been expanded in the last couple of years to include uh, uh, prescription opioids and uh, certainly marijuana. So right. th- those can, uh, can add to your inability to assess or deal with a particular uh, situation that uh, presents itself. Yeah. Hey, uh, Ian, before I let you go, anything else that we haven't touched on that we should talk about here? Because I want to make sure we get it all out there, and and we'll wait for the details on this. One person for sure has died. Uh, Another one is missing. The search continues. It's it's tragic, uh, no matter what. Um, But hopefully a miracle can happen and and the missing man can be found. But before I let you go, uh, anything else at all? 
certainly. One of the things that I'd like to make sure that people understand is we in the Canadian Safe Boating Council love to be out on the water just as much as anybody else, and we're not necessarily always wanting to uh, preach gloom and doom. So get out there, have a great time. Don't do anything that you understand to be a risk. Like one of the things that always hits me is people who allow their children to ride on the bow of the boat as it's in motion. that, That is just a recipe for disaster. And also make sure that you tell people when you be, before you leave where you're going, how many people are there, who they are, and what time you expect to be back so that they can alert search and rescue if you aren't back on schedule. Yeah. And one other thing I just thought of as you were talking there, um, what are the requirements if you're operating a boat? What what are the requirements? You can't just necessarily hop and, and operate a boat. What what training is, is required at what level and when does that kick in? Well, the, the law states that if you're operating a pleasure craft that is powered, you have to have your pleasure craft operator uh proficiency card so uh, make sure that you have that at least as a basic knowledge before you head out to be to be minimally legal but the more you know before you get out there on the water the uh, the better better equipped you'll be to handle anything that uh, might come your way excellent ian thanks a lot for this hopefully it's been a good reminder for people as as i said uh, more of us get in and and enjoy the water either in it or or on top of it thanks a lot all right, take care now. Bye-bye. Joining us now, Gino D'Astasio, Urban Studies Prof at the University of Winnipeg. Gino, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Hal. Thank you for uh, jumping on here. Uh, for sort of a random conversation that I wanted to have today, the start had uh, Chuck Lewis on from Expert Electric this morning. That's sort of a story from last week. They're finally, after years, going ahead with the idea of the Amber Lights uh, in school zones, um, and uh, it, it got me thinking about a few things. You know, I, I, I can remember back when uh, I think Sam Cates was the mayor, and they decided they were going to try and sell the naming rights to city facilities around town. I always suggested they should name uh, change the name of City Hall to C- City Hall, but they didn't like that idea, uh, <laughs> by the way. And then remember the Red Tape, was it the Red Tape Commission or the Red Tape Committee? I think Franco Magnifico was in charge of that. Was that under Mayor Cates as well? Absolutely, yep. They tried to clean up. Uh, that's always a, you know, a mandate of any new uh, administration, clean up yeah. the red tape at uh, whatever level of government. So let's kind of talk about all that, but let's start with why did it take the city so long? Uh, Chuck Lewis at Expert Electric says, not only is this a great idea, run with it, but I'm going to pay for it, I'll install them, and I'll take care of them for 10 years. Why did it take them so long? They should have been saying, thank you very much, Chuck Lewis. Yeah, and that's always the case. You know, with city issues, it's certainly complicated. And whenever we have the, the safety of children and, you know, neighborhood-level traffic at, at heart, I could see it taking some time. But when you have somebody that steps up, kind of like a philanthropist in a way yeah. here, right? Somebody really taking an interest in, in making a, a, something that's been a, a real sore spot for a lot of folks and trying to improve it. You'd hope it would go quicker. You never know if these things get caught up in the legal uh, red tape as well. So it's a challenge. I mean, my point now, I guess, is we've got a few months now to maybe get these things set up for June. If we've got some in-person classes, we could maybe see them in action. And and at the end, let's just hope they reduce speeding in school zones. That's the number one priority here, I think, for anybody. 
Denny just texted in at 204-780-6868. He says, Hal, sometimes I think our politicians are afraid to make a decision. Is there maybe some truth to that? Sometimes politicians are afraid to stick their necks out a bit on, on certain issues. Yeah, this one, you know, is a tough one, Hal, because you'd think on, on one end, it's just simply flashing lights in a neighborhood. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, what the heck? Like, why can't we just get these up and running? And whether they work or not, I mean, at least we've, we've got them rolling. So maybe it is, you know, maybe we needed that uh, political champion, the mayor or a couple of councillors to say, hey, let's make school zone safety a priority. And we've got uh, somebody on the hook here who's a, a Winnipegger with, uh, with some intention to really help out and step up, right? And, and I think we've got to take advantage of those. You know, uh, you made me think of the, you know, adopt a highway, right? Pay a few dollars right. and maybe get a few potholes fixed. You know, and in this case, we're talking mm-hmm. about adopting a, a serious issue for a lot of folks, which is visibility in school zone districts. Maybe we need a commissioner at every level of government. Maybe we need a commissioner of good ideas. You know, if you've got a good idea, you call up or email the commissioner of good ideas, and then <laughs> he weeds through the bad ideas, gets the good ones, and, and takes them to the right people and, and runs with them. Well, absolutely. And again, you know, this is one of those cases where it seems on the, on the face of it is, is a great idea, right? We've got flashing lights for all kinds of things. I mean, it's not like it's a new, ultra-innovative way of, of calling somebody's attention to some kind of traffic light, right? We've got flashing ambers all over. So it calls the driver's attention. And if it meets the Highway Safety Act and all the rest, then I'm with you. You know, the Good Samaritan mm-hmm. Act here. Let's somebody trying to do a good deed for Winnipeg. And, you know, we should be giving something like this a medal, not uh, uh, more yeah. red tape. Yeah. Well, hey, listen, I'll say it again. Good on Chuck Lewis and Expert Electric. Uh, you, you, you're, you're doing something fantastic for the city, I believe. And, and I think it's a shame that it took this long to, to finally uh, say, yeah, thank you. And, and we're going to let you do this for the school zones in our city. Um, is part of the problem with stuff like this, not this one, because I think most people thought this was a good idea, but is part of the problem that Portage and Maine's a great example, Gino, and you and I have talked about Portage and Maine for a long time. Um, is it that you can never please everybody? You know, in a, in a, in the world as a, as a politician, you want to try and please as many as you can and, and try not to piss off too many. And when you get into some of these issues, uh, you don't want to upset too many people. You you know, it's like these politicians, sometimes they lick their finger and they put their hand in the air and they see which way the wind's blowing before they do anything. Well, absolutely. And Portage and Maine is a great example where I think political leadership really failed us in in just coming up with a decisive response from the get-go to just say, council fully supports opening Portage and Maine or council fully supports closing it. Again, I think in this case, you know, around the safety issue, I think we should be rallying and we need more people like this that really want to step up to give back to their community. We've got tremendous number of community clubs and centers that this is the only way they operate is on the goodwill of of local Winnipeggers volunteering their time, their expertise, their energy, their companies. And I think it's made community clubs much better. In this case, we've got somebody that's stepped up citywide. So Maybe we need a, a few folks to step up with some uh, some heavy equipment to, uh, you know, remove the barricades. And maybe if somebody said, well, we'll absorb the cost, maybe it would get done yeah. or take more time. Right. Yes. Right. Which is probably uh, uh, more likely. I, but here's right. my worry, though. You know, Chuck Lewis, uh, he made the offer and then, you know, he got uh, Councillor Klein involved and it got some attention from the media, including us here at CJOB. 
And so his good idea wasn't just in the form of an email and it fell on deaf ears, you know, of a politician, say, at City Hall or somebody over on Broadway. This had uh, real exposure. People knew about it, and look how difficult it was to get a good idea in place. I can only imagine how many people send off emails or phone their counselor or MLA or MP and say, hey, what do you think of this? And it's a good idea, but nothing ever gets done with it. And and those ideas don't get talked about. Yeah, exactly. You know, we've had cases too, Hal, where, you know, uh, citizens have repaired their own back lanes with, with respect to fixing potholes or doing all kinds of things to expedite mm-hmm. what they see as delay in the process of, uh, of inactivity among our, our elected officials and or others. Again, you know, in, in response to that, too, we need to remember that elected officials and everyone, I mean, they're doing a great job. They're trying to do what they yeah. can. But at the end of the day, I, I hear what you're saying, too. Mm-hmm. You just have to, at some point, make a decision. And some of the big ones like this, or again, Portage and Maine, just require people to step forward and say, you know, at the end of the day, opening an intersection or putting up some really important signage isn't necessarily all that complicated, right? We should be able to get to this pretty quickly. Yeah, and I understand liability becomes, I mean, there's there's other issues here. I'm oversimplifying things. And by, by the way, I haven't asked you about another idea that was put out there a while ago. What do you think of uh, making a, an active transport route out of the Arlington Bridge and just have the traffic go Salter and McPhillips and turn that bridge uh, into uh, uh, an area for active transit? What do you think of that idea? I think those are all great ideas. You know, uh, remember too, we've had some uh, some pretty intriguing ideas for reuse of bridges, whether it was condos or restaurants, whether they pay taxes or not. I remember was always a fun question. I think though that kind of infrastructure, if we can't continue to use it for vehicles, let's keep it. I mean, it is sort of an icon of the of the north end as we know it, and if we can turn it into a, a, an active transportation route, I'm all for it. I mean, I'd hate to see it come down for no other reason. So. Again, those are one of the questions. Uh, those are one of the decisions that should, when the time comes, be a no-brainer, right? I live in the South Osborne area uh, on a daily, not a daily basis, but you know, frequently I walk across the old, as we call it now, the BDI bridge that they've uh, uh, appropriated the name. It's a wonderful right. amenity into the community. These are the kinds of things that we need to to ensure that we connect different places, right? So I think that's a, that's that would be a wonderful idea. Gino, thanks for the conversation. Always appreciate it. You bet, Hal. Thank you so much. Right now, Kathy Majowski is with us, registered nurse and board chair of the CNPEA, which is the Canadian Network for the Prevention of Elder Abuse. It is World Elder Abuse Day. Kathy, good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon, Hal. Thanks for having thank me. You for, yes, thank you for doing this. I think last time we were scheduled to talk, I ended up being off, and Kathy Kennedy filled in for me, and you, you chatted with Kathy. But when I saw that it was World Elder Abuse Day today, I thought, all right, we got to get Kathy on here. Um, <laughs> I think when we see the word abuse, we think, oh, uh, uh people are being hit or you know something like that and it certainly can be that but it's so many other more subtle things as well isn't it that's absolutely correct Hal. uh i actually was just on a uh, a panel discussion just uh, as an attendant or as an attendee uh about how potentially with all this covid stuff going on is social isolation uh becoming a form of neglect or a form of abuse for our older adults 
Uh, it's something that, that's really come to the forefront uh, as we learn more about what's going on in long-term care facilities, uh, the risks that our older adults have with this virus, and how they're not able to have those social connections like they were. I think this is a uh, something that we've talked about in the past for sure, is that social isolation piece, but it's absolutely been heightened with the pandemic. And so at what point does it cross that line and then become abuse? You, you mentioned the COVID-19 pandemic. At what point does it become abuse? And, and is it maybe a different level, a different line, uh, depending on the person, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that was, that was mentioned, too, because i got to say, I'm a bit of an introvert. So if you tell me i got to stay home for a little while, I'm not, I'm not going to be too upset. And, and it's important to remember that our older adults, they're not a homogenous group. They're not all the same. So some will be perfectly content because, you know, with with the pandemic, they're being told they have to stay home. They're going, good, nobody's going to bother me to go anywhere. Uh, But there are others that have become much more socially isolated and they've they've lost their social group. They can't see their family. Uh, You know, they have limitations on when they can go to the grocery stores. Uh, And some are scared to go out because they're worried that other people won't follow the proper uh, precautions to keep them safe. So there are just a lot of issues that we knew were there prior to this that have been very much heightened by, by COVID-19. And I think in the elder abuse prevention world right now, there's a lot of us, and in gerontology, um, in geriatrics, a lot of us are kind of hoping that this is going to really shine that light on our, uh, some of the issues that our older adults face on a daily basis and help people to recognize that we have the ability to make changes, and this change has to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my mom is is in a a senior's home in southern Alberta, and I know, you know, nobody's going in, nobody's going out, and it's making her crazy, but at least I know she's Mm -hmm. safe. And uh, and uh, I, whenever this comes up and we talk about COVID, I can't tell you how many text messages and emails and phone calls, even off air, some on air, but most off air, that I've received from people that have uh, an older parent, an elderly parent, or a friend that they are worried about or can't get to. Right? I mean, it, it really COVID nineteen really has uh, sort of heightened the concern, hasn't it? It absolutely has. And, and you kind of asked earlier, and I, I, I missed the, I didn't quite answer you, where, um, where does it become abuse? And this is where we're trying to balance things out because we know that social isolation is, increases risk for abuse. We know that it's, uh, it, it makes it more difficult for people to maintain their mobility and their cognitive functioning. We, a lot of people need that social uh, socialization. So it is a very fine line of, okay, when does it stop being protection and when does it start being dangerous? Um, and that's, that's a discussion that we've, uh, that we've been having over the last few months. I mean, just myself personally, my grandmother's 95 and she's in a care home. Uh, and I did get to see her over the weekend, but it was, it was through a fence. Um, and, and when I asked her how she was doing, she said, you know, it feels like I'm in jail. And, you know, she can't go out anywhere. She can't see anyone. And she, thank goodness, she has her wits about her and she recognizes why this has to happen, but it doesn't necessarily make it any easier. Yeah, I think the other really important thing, you tell me, Kathy, you're the expert, but I think the other really important thing about today and this being World Elder Abuse Day is that we need to be more aware of abuse against our our older citizens, right? Because often when there's abuse happening, uh, it's and it's discovered it's because somebody saw something somebody didn't think that was right and said something right mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. And it's it's about empowering our older adults to be able to speak up for themselves, because in some cases they may not even recognize that what's happening to them is abusive because it could be, you know, a family member that's taking their money. Right. And the family member says, well, I help you with groceries, so you owe me. Right. So it's it's helping people understand that they're you know, this is actually an abusive situation uh, and providing those supports uh, that are around. So it, it does really start with conversations like we're having right now. How is helping people to recognize um, what's what's going on and it's not right um, and helping them understand that there are resources that are available uh, out there for them. Uh, in Manitoba, we have a great organization with A&O Support Services for Older Adults. And if somebody finds themselves in a situation where they feel, um, you know, that they're, that they're being abused or they just don't know what to do anymore, we do have something called Safe Suite. So it's an apartment where uh, older adults can go and get out of the situation and receive help untangling that situation. Because when you're in the midst of it, it can be very difficult um, to get out of it. A and what are some other examples? You, you, you mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. sorry to interrupt, you mentioned the, um, um, uh, you know, the money as uh, one that is uh, or can often be abused. What are some other good examples uh, other than the obvious stuff? What are some other examples of, of elder abuse on this World Elder Abuse Day? Well, anything that takes away a person's right. Uh, is is considered abusive. So if, if someone is being, um, and, and one could argue with social isolation, this, this does become problematic. Um, you know, where do you weigh out rights versus safety? Um, but anything that uh, emotional abuse, neglect, if someone isn't receiving the things that they need um, to be happy, healthy, um, uh, fulfilled in life, that is also a form of abuse. So not giving people what they need um, and, and obviously the, the, the physical abuse um, is, mm-hmm. is something that is a little bit more easy to identify. Emotional abuse, anything that uh, is shame, you know, shame or guilt or uh, yelling, anger, you know, like there's, there's so many different things that can be yeah. uh, qualified as. But I think what it comes down to is if it's a situation that makes an older person feel uncomfortable or if they feel like they're stuck. Like in the case of, of a financial abuse where, you know, they, they're forced to give someone money and they don't know what they can do, um, then that, that's something that we can help with. We can bring awareness to and bring in those additional supports. But they have to be aware that there are supports out there for them. On okay, and if, somebody's, to- and if, and if <laughs> somebody's listening now, how, how can they get that, that support if they're listening, they need it, or maybe they know somebody who might need some help? Mm-hmm. So uh, A&O Support Services uh, in Manitoba is, is a great resource. If you're not in Manitoba, uh, the Canadian Network for the Prevention of Elder Abuse, we have a directory on our website. Um, it's pan, or like Our organization is pan-Canadian, so we have all the, the connections from across Canada uh, on where to get those supports, whether it be legal questions, whether it be social supports, whether it be just more information about uh, elder abuse and elder abuse prevention. All of that is on cmpea.ca on uh, the World Wide Web. All right. Kathy, thank you for doing this. Appreciate it. Thank you, Hal. I'm looking forward to seeing you again. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) You bet. Kathy Majowski, she's a board chair at the CNPEA, which is the Canadian Network for the Prevention of Elder Abuse. And again, the website is cnpea.ca. 
Joining us now, Jason Kindrachuk, prof at the University of Manitoba, Canada Research Chair, Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases. Jason, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you for doing this. Appreciate it. We're talking about this new polling, it seems, Canadians, and this is no surprise, right? Often this polling is, isn't surprising. Canadians are getting fatigued by COVID-19, this virus, and all of the restrictions, even though we're, you know, easing those restrictions surely, but, uh, slowly but surely, but we're, we're getting tired of this. Uh, no surprise, eh, Jason? No, not, not, not at all. And I, I mean, I think we all anticipated this. I mean, I've, you know, I think back to early January when, when I was kind of, you know, in the thick of it at that point. And, you know, knew that, uh, you know, that as the months trailed along, that, yeah, it, we were all going to experience fatigue. Um, I think especially as we start to see social distancing measures, uh, you know, start to get removed and, or at least lessened in many places. You know, you, you kind of get that cabin fever feeling that, you know, you, you've had a little bit of freedom and now you kind of yearn to get back to what things were like maybe, you know, in, in December or, uh, or in January and February. So, uh, it's it's not a surprise to me at all. The unfortunate side is that this this is literally a marathon and not a sprint. Yeah, and um, I wanted to ask you about this too. Cam and I were having this conversation oh half an hour or forty minutes ago about this uh, this fatigue. And I think because we've been so lucky here in Winnipeg and Manitoba when it comes to the total number of cases, and now we're down to five active cases, no cases today uh, after a few on the weekend, I think because the numbers have been so low and it hasn't been the same pandemic here as it's been elsewhere, right, in some cities like New York and even areas of Toronto. And because it's different here, I think there's maybe not fatigue, but locally there's some frustration, right? There are some people out there that say, you know, why aren't we opening things up faster? Is is that a smart idea, or are we where we're at because we've been really good so far? Well, you know, I always go back to the fact that listen, for, for people that are living in Winnipeg and for the province as a whole, um, you know, we, we've had a couple of benefits. One is geographically we're, you know, we're separated from other major centers. I grew up in Saskatoon. I know it's a nine-hour drive, so... You know, we're, we're, we're kind of um, very fortunate in that aspect that, that we are so well separated. Um, but the other aspect is that, our, you know, from a public messaging standpoint, uh, our, uh, our regional public health officials and, and all of our population did really well with, uh, you know, with the initial introduction of social distancing measures and, and helping curb the virus. The problem is now is that, you know, we, we only need to look uh, down at some of the southern states, you know, north and south Carolina to Arizona, California, Texas. Um, to see what happens and, and what is happening as social distancing measures have been removed a little bit too quickly. And, and that's the problem with this virus is that it hasn't disappeared from Manitoba. It, it isn't transmitting, um, obviously, to, to any great extent. But we don't know that that won't suddenly happen if, if we reduce all the social distancing measures. So I, I think we're, we're still in a time period where we're trying to learn and understand what this virus is going to do next. What have we learned about this virus uh, over the past two or three months? Because we have learned a lot uh, during that period of time, haven't we? We've learned probably, you know, uh, probably a decade's worth of information um, in, in the past six months. I, you know, let alone going back to January when we started getting data out of China from, from their initial uh, observations with the virus. So we're, we're at a, a, an amazing pace right now for, for trying to understand what this virus is and what it does. Um, 
But the, the problem with emerging viruses as a whole is that they are unpredictable. And in COVID-19 and SARS coronavirus 2, which causes COVID-19, um, have been just utterly unpredictable from, you know, from the get-go onwards. And I think we're still trying to understand uh, what, what this virus is and, and what it does uh, across the, the, the population, especially across different age groups. So I, I think we're still at a relative infancy in, in our understanding of the virus, but um, you know, people across the globe are, are doing just an amazing job of uh, fast-tracking our, our knowledge base. And one final question, Jason. You tell me you're you're the expert, but just in text messages that I see from people in emails, and the sense I get as I follow this story, and I I you know uh, make a point of sort of checking how things are going with COVID nineteen in other uh, jurisdictions as well. It seems to me, and people are most worried, I think, about a second wave here or a spike of some kind. And the borders, is that key, keeping the borders closed, keeping us here and others out? Is, is that the best way to ensure our numbers stay low? Is that the biggest worry that you have? What, what is your biggest worry? Well, there's, you know, the, I, part of my biggest worry, honestly, is, is the unpredictability of this virus. So we know that, um, you know, obviously the, the virus has been able to move around globally by international uh, travel. We know that there's at least some data to suggest that the, uh, the current uh, kind of resurgence of cases in Beijing may be related to, uh, to international travelers. Um, so we, we do have that concern, and I think we have that vested concern in Canada, especially when we look uh, south of the border to the U.S. and the cases we're seeing there. Um, but when we start thinking about interprovincial travel, now we're in a bit of a different position. We we are seeing you know fairly uh, fairly plateaued cases in most regions of Canada, in particular the western provinces. Um, so we can look at, at relaxing some of those uh, uh, different criteria and, and basically monitoring cases and, and doing quick contact tracing to, to try and, and keep this thing contained. And, and we'll hopefully know very quickly uh, how things look. And, and if that happens, if we see cases resurging then we're probably going to have to uh, start looking at instituting some uh, some more social distancing measures to, to curb that transmission. All right. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed and, and keep doing what we've been doing now for a few months, and hopefully it will continue to be uh, uh, much better here than elsewhere. Jason, thank you. Great. Thank you so much for having me on this afternoon. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.